You're listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number economy. of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Hello, and welcome back to another Economy Matters podcast. I'm Tom Heinches, managing editor of the Atlanta Fed's Economy Matters magazine. And today I'm speaking with Julie Hotchkiss, a research economist and senior advisor in the Atlanta Fed's research department. Julie is also the executive director of the Atlanta Research Center, or ARDC, and that's what we're going to discuss today. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thanks, Tom. I'm, I'm glad to be here and that you asked me to come to talk about the Atlanta RDC. Julie, can you briefly describe what the ARDC is? Oh, yes. Let's get that out of the way for sure. Research data centers are secure computing labs where qualified researchers conduct approved statistical analysis using non-public data. Now, the operative words there, of course, are secure, approved, and non-public, but I expect we'll get more into that later. Oh, we sure will. Julie, there are now 24 RDCs around the country, and the Atlanta Fed houses one of them. How did the RDC begin, and what need did they fill that wasn't filled by existing resources? Well, it's my understanding that the motivation by the Census Bureau to open satellite labs was to harness, I guess, the brain power, if you will, around the country to help address statistical issues that they face all the time. These would be questions about survey design, sampling techniques, and other statistical types of questions. Now, I expect that they reason that if researchers use census data in their own research efforts related to these types of questions, then that just increases how much more the census can learn. Right. Well, uh, that does sound like a mutually beneficial collaboration. Well, I think that it really is, and and I think that that's what's contributed to the success of this RDC network idea. Uh, Researchers under very strict confidentiality constraints have access to non-public microdata in order to expand their own research agendas, while at the same time, the Census Bureau learns more about their data products, research design, and things like that. Now, before the satellite RDCs were opened, researchers actually had to travel to the Census Bureau in Maryland to access non-public microdata and, you know, in order to, to fulfill their own research. Right. By the end of 2017, there's going to be an additional six RDC labs, bringing the total across the U.S. to 30 labs. And the new labs are that are being added are going to fill out the middle part of the country where there's sort of a, you know, not very many RDC labs at the moment. Right. And before we go any further, I should add that uh, we are talking about the Census Bureau. So I want to make clear that you're not speaking on behalf of, of the Census Bureau today. Yeah, that's absolutely true. My views are just those of, of a researcher myself who uses the RDC and as executive director of the Atlanta RDC, where where my role really is just to pay the bills and to be a cheerleader. And, uh, and speaking of the census, the U.S., of course, always had a decennial census and data from the census go into any number of policy decisions. But why did the idea of, of microdata develop? Well, I'm not sure of the exact history, but the Census Bureau has been doing surveys in addition to the decennial census that we're all familiar with for decades. Now, I do know that every five years, they do a survey of establishments, just like they do a survey of people every 10 years. 
And the, the Census Bureau also conducts surveys uh, for other government agencies because they're really good at it, such as the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Bureau of Justice, National Science Foundation, and I could go on and on. But while it might not surprise some people, the Census Bureau has been doing surveys focused on a variety of subjects for a very long time. Right. Well, RTCs began opening in the mid-90s. Was it a matter of the technology reaching a point where RTCs were feasible in a way that they had not been prior to that? As I mentioned before, before the RDCs were opened, the researcher would have to travel to the Census Bureau itself to do their research using non-public data. And again, exactly, I don't know exactly how it all transpired, but I'm sure it wasn't just the technical capability of accessing data remotely, because I, I was doing that in the 1980s, accessing data from other sources, but, but rather how to do it securely. Um, so that the confidentiality of the data wouldn't be compromised. We'll touch on that again soon. I note that most RDCs are housed in universities, although a few are in other reserve banks and other types of institutions. How did the Atlanta Fed come to house an RDC? By the time the Atlanta RDC was opened, there were really only about 13 RDCs around the country. Um, there was a noted absence in the Southeast, and two faculty members at Georgia State ha had connections with the National Science Foundation and with the Census Bureau, and they were approached about building a consortium in Atlanta. And these faculty were um, aware uh, that there was already an RDC at the Chicago Fed, so they approached me about including the Atlanta Fed in the consortium with the possibility of housing the lab at the Atlanta, in the Fed building. So, I mean, it seemed to make a lot of sense to house a secure data center in a facility that knows about security, like the Atlanta Fed does. Right. There are two other locations at Federal Reserve Banks, the one in Chicago that I mentioned that's been around much longer, and the Kansas City Fed that just uh, opened this past year. And by the end of 2017, there should be a branch RDC located at the Philadelphia Fed. Was it difficult to make a, a business case for the Atlanta Fed to house the RDC? Well, it really wasn't. The Fed, Fed management was very excited about the possibility of engaging the broader Atlanta research community. And they really jumped at the opportunity to participate. I really wasn't sure how they were going to respond to the, to the request. But they reasoned that being part of the consortium would provide staff here at the Atlanta Fed with the, with the potential to have access to important new resource. But in addition, by hosting the RDC, the staff would be able to interact with researchers from around the region that would be coming here to use the RDC. And, and this would provide intellectual stimulus to, to the work that we're already doing here. Right. Well, I, I imagine it was quite the learning experience for everyone concerned. That's a bit of an understatement. Um, <laughs> other feds like Chicago have a long history of sharing their space with, with tenants, but Atlanta didn't have that experience. The Atlanta RDC is the first and still the only tenant uh, in the Atlanta Fed building. So there were some significant growing pains, but we've managed to work through it. You've mentioned uh, the consortium for some time. And what other institutions make up the ARDC consortium? There's currently eight members in the Atlanta Consortium. So in addition to the uh, Federal Reserve Bank and Georgia State University, Emory University, the University of Georgia, Georgia Tech, 
Florida State University, Clemson University, and University of Tennessee all support the operations and use uh, the Atlanta RDC. I see. Julia, is one of the roles of an RDC to help answer policy questions without the need for something like additional data collections? It's interesting that you ask that because the Census Bureau makes a very big point that they don't involve themselves in questions of policy ever. However, they are very interested in learning more about the data that they collect and about the population of people and businesses in the United States. Right. And this is where the mutual benefit of the relationship between the Census Bureau and the research communities is illustrated. One of my favorite examples of the type of research question that can be answered through use of non-public data is, is where a researcher investigated the incentives of implementing performance-based standards in school systems using administrative data that are only available in the RDCs. The researcher was able to find that if a school system had performance-based standards in place, that, that this greatly reduced the number of teachers taking second jobs. Huh. So, I mean, presumably the teachers wanted to focus their energies on doing well as a teacher. So not, you know, so they wouldn't perform badly on these performance standards. Right, right. So what's in it for the Census Bureau if it doesn't care about the policy questions that come out of an RDC? From each one of these projects, they learn more about the population underlying their surveys. For example, if they see in their surveys a drop in the number of people holding second jobs, they might wonder if that drop was a statistical phenomenon, like their survey is messing up somehow, or a change in behavior. The research that I just described provides a non-statistical explanation for the change in observed responses to I the see, survey. I, I see, right. Julie, uh, you've noted several times just in this conversation that access to an RDC is, is strictly controlled. Even other employees at institutions hosting an RDC, such as myself, can't walk in and begin accessing data. Briefly, how is uh, quote-unquote restricted-use microdata different from, say, census data that is publicly available? That's a very good question. Take reported income, for example. Uh, publicly available surveys like the current population survey, which is where we get our monthly estimates of the unemployment rate, by the way, they ask respondents about their income. Well, if someone reports an income level uh, like in the six or the seven digits, this information along with other information they report, such as their occupation, or the county that they live in, it, it might make them identifiable to perhaps their neighbors if their neighbors happen to be using the CPS. Right. So what the census does is that they either top code or replace the income variable, making the person harder to identify. So users of the public data see the fake income variable, but researchers in the RDC usually get to see the actual income variable of that um. person. I see. And why does it matter whether researchers get to see the real income variable or not? Well, for example, we can't really answer questions about things like income distribution or, say, the growth in income inequality unless we see all the incomes. Right. So if you want to know something about the top 1% of earners as a group, not even individually, we need to be able to know exactly who they are and what they look like. Julie, do you have any other examples of how the microdata available to researchers differs from, from what the census makes available to the public? 
There's examples in business data as well. Uh, this is the business data is that that comes from the census of establishments. The Census Bureau only publishes aggregate values from these surveys. For example, average employment numbers or revenues of establishments in a certain industry. In the RDC, researchers may have access to individual establishment level information, information that a business might not want their competitors to know about, but are crucial, um, say, if we want to know something about worker productivity. So both of these examples, the example of income inequality and knowing more about worker productivity, illustrate how useful non-public data can be and how important the safeguards um, are in making sure these details are never made publicly available. What keeps researchers from divulging this highly confidential information they have access to? Well, you mean besides the potential $250,000 fine and five-year prison sentence? (laughs) Yes, setting aside those consequences for the moment. Well, besides these heavy penalties uh, that someone would be subjected to if they revealed any of the data that they have access to, each researcher has to undergo screening to obtain what's called special sworn status. How? (laughs) This uh, special term basically means that the Office of Personnel can track down friends, family members, and neighbors to make sure that the person being allowed access to these data doesn't have some dark secret that would make them at the least cavalier or even worse uh, in the use of these data. Julie, to use the full name, the Federal Statistical Research Data Center doesn't only hold census data. Other federal agencies contribute data, including the Department of Transportation, the Agriculture Department, the Social Security Administration, the BLS, and Energy Information Administration, just to name some of the better known ones. To researchers, what advantages are brought by having these really different agencies house their data in one repository? Uh, You've touched on actually one of the most important aspects of uh, of the uh, RDC network, and that is that one of the main advantages of having data from many surveys managed by one agency is that it allows researchers to see individuals and businesses when they show up in multiple sources. So, for example, um, an individual who was surveyed as part of, say, the current population survey is also included in the administrative records filed by his or her employer every quarter with the Department of Labor. Right. So the employer reports the individual's earnings in the administrative data, and the employee reports his or her earnings in the survey. An important question is how accurate survey responses are. By comparing the survey response with the administrative data, we can learn something about how reliable survey responses are. So can linkages and inferences be made across surveys conducted by different organizations? Yes, absolutely. So establishments and firms are linkable across economic surveys. For example, the establishments from the survey of pollution abatement can also be found in the economic census. And we can use data from these economic census in order to fill in some information that might not have been asked in the specific pollution abatement survey, for example. Right. Uh, Well, given the wealth of data that we have access to, well... You, not me. This must be a really wonderful time to be a researcher. How have these resources changed how you go about your work? 
Well, also, again, first to be clear, uh, even I don't have access to the data that are included <laughs> except those in my very specific approved research project. But to your point, when we publish articles in top economics journals, we're often required to make data and programs available for replication purposes. Basically, it keeps us honest. Right. However, when one uses non-public data, of course, we can't just turn over those data. So, well, we do make the programs available, and uh, we're typically granted an exemption from providing the data. Somebody just produced a report that showed that since 2006, the percent of articles published in top journals receiving this sort of data exemption has increased from 8% in 2006 to 46% of articles in 2014 that get this exemption. So what this suggests is that using non-public proprietary data is becoming increasingly important for publishing in the top journals, in economics anyway. Hmm. I guess that kind of dynamic is kind of a chicken and egg question. Well, it, well, yeah, I mean, it is kind of hard to say which came first. So, you know, researchers using restricted data or the demand by journals to use new and unique data. But, I mean, the reality is with us in, in the academic world. Using non-public proprietary data or experimental data is becoming not only more common, but to a certain extent expected. Is there anything that's come out of RDC research that the, the man on the street might be familiar with? Well, there might be a better sort of current example, but one recent project that comes to mind that has the potential of wide-ranging impact, whether the public actually is going to be aware of it or not, is being done by one of our own Fed economists. Whenever someone wants to start a business and expects to hire workers, they have to apply with the IRS for what's called an employer identification number or an EIN. Some researchers, including my colleague, had the idea that these applications for EINs might be useful in predicting business cycles. This is one of the hardest things that Fed economists try to do uh, in setting monetary policy, is trying to figure out when we're going into or coming out of a recession. Right. So, I mean, we really have very little what's called leading economic indicators of these cyclical turns. So as you might expect, as the economy starts to slow, the man or woman entrepreneur on the street knows about it before we do, and there are fewer applications for EINs. And vice versa, when the economy starts to pick up again, we should see an increase in applications for these EINs. Wow. Uh, an undertaking like that must uh, must take some time. Well, the researchers actually have been working on this project for a um, few years now. They've been cleaning the data. And once they're finished putting it all together, it will be made available to researchers in the RDC. I believe they have plans to make a public version available uh, using these data sort of in the aggregate so that other researchers who don't have access to the RDC or even you and I could just go and, and have a look for ourselves. So when a researcher is working in the RDC, do you help them execute queries or whatever they do in there? The researcher pretty much has to be self-reliant in doing their research, of course. The computing environment can be quite different than what we're used to when we're simply running regressions on our desk. And if I haven't mentioned it yet, let me tell you that you have to physically be in the lab in order to do the research. Oh, right. 
Uh, it's sort of a back to the future for those of us who remember having to go to the campus computer lab to run our regressions. <laughs> but anyway, while, while they're in the lab, they, they have an important resource available to draw on, and that's our census administrator, Melissa Bansaf. She is a census employee, and, and she is part of the process from start to finish, your best friend. She helps researchers as they develop proposals, as they keep track or they try and track down, actually, definitions of variables in the data that they're using and in, in filing requests to release the results for presentations or journal publications. And I would be remiss to not mention that she likes chocolate chip cookies. So if you want to stay on her good side, I'm just oh, saying. Well, <laughs> tell her about this podcast and put in a good word for me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Julie, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I want to thank you for taking time sharing your insights with us. Well, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate you asking me. I never would have thought your listeners would be interested in something as nerdy as data. Oh, we dominate the uh, data nerd demographic. And I also want to encourage listeners to visit the RDC's website at atlantarDC.org, and you'll get a good idea of the facilities, capabilities, and purposes. Well, we're at the end of another Economy Matters podcast. Again, I'm Tom Heinches, Managing Editor of Economy Matters, and thanks for spending time with us. Please come back next month for another episode. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.